You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Text is three portions of John today. John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. John 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And John 21, verses 24 and 25. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. All right. Well, thanks for being here this morning. We're glad that you're here. Um, Have you ever noticed how much of your life and existence Um, lays on a foundation of trust. How much trust do you have to have like each day just to function? Think about this. When you wake up, you assume, you trust that the laws of nature are still in effect. If gravity had changed somehow overnight, you'd be kind of in trouble, wouldn't you? (laughs) If it had changed one way or the other. In fact, actually, your brain is indicating right now that your lungs should inhale and exhale because you're trusting that the dimensions of the atmosphere, the, uh, the, the right combination of, of elements in the atmosphere is going to keep you alive. You think about that. Think about just even like these beams here that are keeping these slanted pieces of rock from caving down on us. Um, we live, we couldn't function if we didn't have some measure of trust in things we didn't understand and didn't create, didn't make, didn't do. Um, I, I can imagine, I mean, you just think of all these different things. Um, as you turn to my house, I, I just think about traffic. Like if you ever drive down the road and just, you know, you're going and there's just the, those little yellow lines that separate you from someone traveling 60 miles at your face and you're traveling 60 miles this way and you're trusting that that person understands what those lines are about, right? And is paying attention. And so we, we live, our entire existence is based on this idea of trust. We have to trust or we just can't, can't live. Um, imagine that you're going to Japan. Going to Japan, woohoo! You're going to Japan, and you want to go to Japan. You 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 assume Japan exists because you've heard of Japan. I've never been to Japan. Some of you have. I just assume it exists because people I trust tell me that it exists. Right? I'm having to trust someone else's report report that there is a place that I haven't personally seen, but I assume it exists because trustworthy people have told me. Now I couldn't get there in and of my own strength. I'm not strong enough swimmer. I'm not a long enough walker (laughs) to be able to get there myself. If I was to get to a place like Japan, I would have to trust in something else. And that's why we have airplanes, right? Someone else designed something. Um, There's a place that I don't know about, but I trust exists. 
um, an, an airplane that I didn't build, I didn't think up, I would have to climb onto and I would have to trust. And I would have to have to trust that whoever put it together knew what they were doing. And then I would also have to trust that the pilot who was flying it understood how this contraption worked and that they were going to go and take me where they promised to take me, right? It would take trust to get to Japan, a trust not in myself, but a trust in something else. Someone else had put together and they credibly could keep their promises, could get me there, right? Our whole lives are based on trust, and the Bible holds itself out as being a reliable thing that we can trust, that it explains about the physical reality, explains about who we are, who God is, and that there is a place that we have not yet seen that we are made for, that we're designed for, and, and that there is no way that we can get there ourselves. We have to trust in order to get there. So we get this. We get this understanding in the rest of our life that we have to trust in things that we didn't contribute um, in order to live. And the Bible is saying the same is true when it comes to spiritual things. That we have to trust that there is someone out there who can take us to a place that we haven't seen before, but has given us reliable testimony, and that we can't get there ourselves, we can't get in a right relationship with God, we can't get to that place with God without someone coming who can put together the, pla- the place, the plane, the pilot, the process that we just simply trust in. And so it works that way spiritually. The whole Bible is holding itself out as that, as an accurate representation to be trusted for spiritual things. And John, the Gospel of John here, is maybe the pinnacle of that, maybe the mountain peak of that, what is it that we trust in? What is it that we trust in to be able to be uh, right with God? The Gospel of John, we're going we're to do the whole book in one shot today. And uh, my kids are a little nervous because they know how long it takes me to do two verses. So to do 21 chapters, but uh, we're going we're gonna to try to put this all together. We've been in the Gospel of John in 2020, and this is the last Sunday of our first year as a church, and it's also uh, the, the first book of the Bible that we have been through together has been the Gospel of John. And John is a biography of Jesus written by one of his closest apostles. Um, in fact, he refers to himself as the, 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 the disciple whom Jesus loved. He had this very intimate relationship with Jesus, and he got to see with his own eyeballs the, the work, the words, the accomplishments of Jesus Christ. The three other Gospels most likely had already been written by the time John puts pen to paper, and so he writes this fourth biography of Jesus. And I think he's responding to some, some things that have gotten weird about the testimony of Jesus, so he adds this fourth Gospel in just to make sure that people don't take the testimony and run with it, don't take the message of Jesus and corrupt it. He adds 92% new material to the other three Gospels. So he's writing a very unique Gospel. We call the other three the synoptics, similar, and then optic view, similar view. The other three really overlap significantly. And then there's John, who, uh, who adds 92% new material. In relation to the other Gospels, this one has fewer miracles in it than the others. There's no parables at all in the Gospel of John. And he's the most direct and persuasive and purposeful in his gospel. He right out of the gate makes it clear, and then at the end of his book and all throughout makes it clear that he is writing this for a purpose. He intends for you to be persuaded that this eyewitness testimony is true and that it does save if you will trust in it. That you can't get to Japan without trusting in an airplane, something you didn't do. You can't get to a right relationship with God without trusting someone who can do what you can't do who can overcome what you can't overcome, who can fix what's wrong with you and bring you into a relationship with God purely based on you being trusting in Him. And so here it is. It's basically in four parts. We have a prologue in John 1, 1 through 18 that Bree uh, read for us, which introduces what John is going to do in the book. And then in the, there's two basic sections in the middle. The book of Signs. In 119 through 1231, which really John is making his case about the identity of Jesus, who he is, and his ministry. And then we turn a corner in John chapter 13, and the second half of the gospel is really focused on the last 24 hours before Jesus goes to the cross, and then his resurrection and a final ministry event in chapter 21. But that book, it's often called the book of glory, the book of signs. What did Jesus do and teach? What does that say about his identity? And then what did he accomplish that no one else could accomplish? And we call that the book of glory, where he goes to, he is glorified. He uses that term quite a bit. I am about to be glorified. I'm about to be lifted up. 
and he accomplishes on the cross and his resurrection what no one else could do. He essentially builds the plane to God. He builds the access point to God, and he himself will provide a way to a right relationship with God. So that's the book of glory, and then we have the epilogue, this closing out of the narrative with a story of him and John, uh, or him and, him and his disciples, particularly Peter, at the, la- at the end of John in the last chapter. Um, and that then closes the official record on Jesus. The four Gospels are the official record of the life and ministry and accomplishments of Jesus and what they mean. And then the rest of the New Testament really just builds out then what the implication story is so powerful it changes the world and it changes anyone who will enter into it by faith. And so that's what the rest of your Bible is all about. The Old Testament really leads up all that God is doing in human history to set the world up for Jesus. And then you have the four Gospels that show you what this man is, this God-man who can do what no one else can do, that can take us where no one else can take us, that can rescue us from the wrath of God. And then the rest of your Bible really then comes down into what are the implications of that. And so I want to walk through the book answering four questions for you. I think there's four main questions that are answered in this Gospel. I think you could do this with any of the Gospels, but I think these four will guide us through the entire book quite well. Number one is, who is Jesus really? Who is Jesus really? That'll be the first question we answer. Secondly, what did Jesus ultimately accomplish? So who is he? Really. Like, really, who is this guy? And then, what did he accomplish? What did he do? Third, what does this, why does this record of Jesus matter? who he is, what he did, and then why does it matter? What's the significance? It might be interesting, but is it significant? And then lastly, what's the right response to this? If, in fact, it does matter, then how does one get in on it? How do you you join? How do you join the team? How do you leave your life the way it is and the destiny you're headed for and join his team and his destiny and what he has to offer? So let's go through these one at a time. Who is Jesus really? Who is Jesus really? according to the Gospel of John. John comes right through the front door at the very beginning. So if you have your Bibles, you can look at John chapter 1. I have these little uh, journals, which is just the Gospel of John. So if you have a hard time finding things in your Bible, join the club. It's a a big book. Uh, But this is just the Gospel of John. So you can just open up, very first page, you're right where you need to be. And I would encourage you to take this if you... you, uh, if you, if you don't have one yet, or maybe even take an extra one, this would be a great thing to read through with somebody, just like over coffee or whatever, and just go, hey, let's just read the Bible and see what it says about Jesus, and then you can decide what you want to do. That would be a great opportunity. Um, so please take them. They don't do any good sitting in a box, so please take them. But right here, who is Jesus really? John comes right out and says what he thinks at the beginning of the gospel. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word which very much looks like Genesis 1-1, the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God. And so John is doing that on purpose. He's wanting you to connect the dots that the God of Genesis is the God that we're dealing with here. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. This is the Creator. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skip down to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The Creator God came to earth. The one who made everything, holds everything, sustains everything, actually became a dependent human creature. He came and had lungs and a brain and had a mom and a dad, and he had had to learn things. It's mind-blowing to think that the Creator God came to earth. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world, and he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he, came the, became, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And just a few, few verses later, we're going to see that that Word made flesh, that creator God who became man has a name, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. So John comes right out, out of the very beginning and goes, here's who I think Jesus is. The creator God who put on flesh came to earth to rescue humanity. So right out, just a few sentences in, 
John is already giving you his case. He's already giving you his conclusion. And then what he's going to do, starting in verse 19, is then start to prove his case. He's then, he's going from cosmic creator God, maker of all things, to now in verse 19, he zooms all the way down to the ground level and says, this is the testimony of John. So he goes all the way from like beyond the universe to zoom all the way down to this crazy man who lives in the middle of nowhere, Judea. And he's going to build his case from this, this prophet who eats locusts or whatever that means and, and wears all these weird things. He's going to zoom way down in, in this little spot on this, on this globe, this wilderness where this prophet lives. And he's going to then prove that what he said in the first few verses, that this is the word made flesh, this is the creator God. He zooms all the way down and he's going to build his case starting with this weird prophet and then conclude all the way in John chapter 20, verse 29. So he builds it. He just walks through the life of Jesus, building his case, starting from the ground up, starting from the most obscure place that you could think of, building it up, building it, building it, building it. And then he gets to John 20, 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And then at that point, he turns and says, Now, many other things Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So from the very beginning, this is the word made flesh, come to rescue people who believe in him, who receive him. And then he starts and he builds just brick by brick, step by step, to where now you get to the end and go, see, he is the Son of God, and by believing you'll have life in his name. So you go, From John's confession all the way to the end there, the disciples' confession, my Lord and my God, that even the most skeptical of the disciples was himself convinced by the time he got to the end. So who is Jesus really? Now what he does in between there, particularly in the first 12 chapters, is Jesus is given, well actually in in chapter 1, with John the Baptist, you start this little obscure thing, Jesus then begins to call disciples together, and and there's this fascinating thing, there are seven titles of Jesus that then pop up in the rest of the first chapter. So John has given his case in the prologue, and now the rest of chapter 1, there's these seven titles that pop up. We have have him called Jesus of Nazareth in chapter 1, verse 45. We have him called the Lamb of God, which brings all kinds of Old Testament symbolism of atonement and and the passing over of wrath, the the, the cleansing of sin. Um, We see that in verse 29 and 36. We have the Son of God, mentioned in verse 34 and 49 we have the term rabbi which means teacher in verses 28 and 49 we have the word messiah now that's a loaded term that's a loaded term with tremendous significance from the old testament that there would be a rescuer and that he is a king king of israel verse 49 and the son of man verse 51 so you go from john's prologue where he lays out where he's going then all of a sudden you've got all this speculation early on when jesus is just starting to get started in his ministry all this speculation about who he is. And there's these seven titles floating around. There's these different ideas about who he might be. Is he a rabbi? Is he the Lamb of God? Is, he the Je- is this Jesus of Nazareth, the rabbi, the Messiah, the Son of Man? And what happens is that John is then going to take those, and you're going to see that all seven of those are true of Jesus. And he does it through this series of sevens. It's masterfully written narrative here, where we have these seven claims by Jesus, seven divine claims, where Jesus uses the term, I am. He uses the term, I am. So who does Jesus think that he is? Well, in John 8, 57 and 58, Jesus comes right out with it. The Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So 2,000-ish years before Jesus was Abraham, the father of faith, the one who received the promises of, of blessing from God. And Jesus himself says, before Abraham existed, I am. And he uses this term that we actually see in Exodus chapter 3, that when Moses asks God what his name is at the burning bush, he says, tell them my name is I am. I'm the self-existent one. I am the ever-present one. I am, the, the, I, I am, I am self-existent. I am that I am. His covenant name, I am. And Jesus takes this seven different times and then fleshes out what that means. How, what that means that he is the I am. 
that he is the God of the Old Testament, that he is the, the creator God, the covenant God of Israel. And then he fleshes that out by adding some descriptives to that. So in John 6, we see that Jesus says, I am the bread of life. So Jesus is the nourisher of, of souls. In John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Jesus leads and guides his people. In John 10, he says, I am the door of the sheep. So Jesus is the access point and the protection point for the flock. He keeps them safe. He keeps them together. He brings them in. He's the door of the sheep. In John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. So Jesus conquers death for you and with you if you trust in him. He's the resurrection and the life. Also in John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. That's what he does. He lays down his life for his people. In John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is claiming that he will always get it right. He will always be right, and he will make it right forever. I think that's kind of at the essence of what the way, the truth, and the life is, is that he is the access point. He is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. He always gets it right. He will always be right, and he will make it right forever. In John 15, he says, I am the true vine, which means he is the life giver. We are the branches. As we are connected to him, we will have spiritual life. He and he alone is the life giver, and he is the one that makes life productive. So we have Jesus who is saying that he is the I am, the covenant God of Israel, the creator of all things. And he is the one that has come in the flesh, and he, these I am statements indicate what that means. There's also seven validating signs. We already saw that that John has already concluded his book by saying these are written, many other signs he did among the apostles, but these are written so that you can believe, so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So it's not Jesus, just that Jesus claimed to be God, but also through these I am statements, but he also validated it with signs. They're, these are not just inspiring miracles. These are not just kind of random little slights of hand that Jesus can do. These are substantive, purposeful events that are meant to reveal a mystery and a previously undetected reality that he is coming in and he is giving these signs so that we'll believe his claims of who he says he is. He claims to be God and he can back it up by doing God things. So in John chapter 2, we see Jesus turning water to wine at a wedding. So he has the ability to change the nature of physical reality and make it very enjoyable. Jesus heals the official son in, John, in chapter 4, and he heals him at a distance, just at request, so he's God of time and space and bodies and diseases. He can just say a word, and something many miles away can change. He can change the reality at a distance. In chapter 5, he heals a paralytic, so he can fix what's wrong with human beings. He can fix their bodies. He feeds 5,000 people in chapter 6 plus women and children. So this massive group of people he can sustain by multiplying bread and fish. He walks on water, John 6. He heals a blind man in chapter 9. He raises a man from the dead in chapter 11. Each one of these ramps up in intensity. Each one of these is more and more difficult, more and more, um, more, and more profound in terms of its implications for people, and he can even raise the dead, the enemy of humanity, the curse of sin, which is death. Jesus can reverse it. He can change it. And that leads us up to the final sign of him actually rising from the dead himself. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, that these seven signs are worthless unless the major sign of the resurrection of Jesus comes in. We talked about like, a, like an engagement ring, which with all these accent diamonds, but the most impressive, the most beautiful, they're all meant to accent the one main diamond, is that Jesus has the ability to raise himself from the dead, which means he's God. He is God in the flesh. He can validate his claims. He can prove it. He can back it up. We also see that there's some Old Testament ceremonies, the Passover, um, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Sabbath. There is all these Old Testament symbols that Jesus himself um, uses strategically to show that he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. There's a number of pictures, at least seven, where he then shows that he is the fulfillment of those things. He's the new Moses. He's the new manna. He is the new, um, he, he, all these different pictures. You can go back to my, the message I preached on September 6th 
where I flesh those out a little bit. So you can look at that message if you want called Jesus is the Son of God. And I unpack those a little bit as well, what those different pictures are. But the bottom line is if we were to go back to chapter 1 and look at those titles, this is basically what John is concluding. This is basically what John is proving through the first 12 chapters and in essence through the entire book. And it's this. Let me take those seven titles that were floating around early in the book of in, in chapter 1. And here's what I think he is proving and saying. Jesus of Nazareth, a real historic person, a real historic person, not a myth, but a real historic person, is the promised Son of Man, truly human. He is the unique Son of God, truly divine, who came to be the rabbi, teacher, instructor, and the king of Israel and indeed the whole world by dying as the Lamb of God as the atoning sacrifice for sin for his people. So all of these little titles that are happening early on that the people are wondering about, that John the Baptist is saying, that his disciples are now claiming and calling him, you can put them all together and come up with the gospel message. That Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Son of Man, the unique Son of God who came to be the rabbi and king of Israel and the whole world by dying as the Lamb of God as a sacrifice for sin. He's going to deal with the problems of humanity. So who is Jesus really? That's it. That's who he is. He is the God-man who has come to save a people. Second question, what did Jesus ultimately accomplish? I have a number here, but even uh, I'm going to give you one, two, three, four, five, six. I'm going to give you six here, things that Jesus accomplished. But we could go on forever. In fact, the book ends with Jesus did many other things that if they were to be written down, the whole world couldn't contain the books. So we're going to give six, but we could go on for a long time looking at all of the things that Jesus actually accomplished. Ephesians 1 tells us that we have been blessed in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing. So whatever spiritual blessing that heaven could dream up, we have, for, have them in Christ. So we're, gonna, we're just going to see the very tip of the iceberg here of all that Jesus accomplished. But here's some main ones from the Gospel of John. John or Jesus ultimately accomplished, he ultimately revealed the glory of God. Verse 114, chapter 114. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Moses asked God if he could see His glory, and, and, um, and God said, you can't handle it. So he hit him in the cleft of the rock and kind of let his shadow pass by him. It was just this glancing blow of glory. Well, now we have in the face of Jesus Christ glory. We have the face of God face with features and eyes and lips and ears. We have seen His glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus reveals the glory of God. Secondly, Jesus earned a right standing before God by living a perfect, sinless life. He's the only one that doesn't have any regrets about how his life went. He's the only one that never sinned. He's the only one who is perfect. Chapter 6, verse 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So he perfectly did the will of God in every way. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. 1932 through 33. Just listen to this. This is at his crucifixion. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. And when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead and they did not break his legs. But, the one, of the so but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So Jesus perfectly fulfills the Old Testament prophecies about a Messiah. Jesus also brought an otherworldly kingdom to earth. He brought a kingdom unlike any other kingdom in the world. In fact, when he's talking with Pilate at his trial, Pilate asks him, are you a king? And he and, he and Jesus have this exchange Jesus answered Pilate, chapter 18, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. We, have been, we would have been going about this in all the ways that every other human kingdom has ever done it. But this is not a worldly kingdom with, king, with, the, with the same worldly values that have gotten you guys in the mess that you're in now. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom has a different kind of system my servants would be fighting, and I would not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. 
everyone who listens to my voice, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So he brings an otherworldly kingdom. He is a king who brings a totally different way of doing things. He brings a otherworldly kingdom to earth. Number five, Jesus willingly went to a Roman cross as a sufficient blood atonement sacrifice for sin, a once-for-all, a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. The Jewish people had been for thousands of years having to offer sacrifices, bloody sacrifices. It would have been awful to be a priest. (laughs) You would just be sticky with blood all of the time. And I can just imagine that you would go, man, is this what sin does? Is this what is required? The idea that at some point there would be a once-for-all sacrifice that would end this gruesome mess would be so appealing. <laughs> be so appealing. And Jesus himself is that sacrifice. In chapter 12, verse 7, Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. So even before, he was saying, Hey, those who are recognizing that I need to go to my death, this is what's, this is what's coming. He's predicting his own death. He does this uh, later in chapter 12. Jesus said to him, The hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. And he's indicating himself that what I have to offer you is of no value if I can't give it to you, right? He has to die in order to be able to extend um, this life to others. And unless this, this eternal life will only be given to you if I go through this process of death and resurrection. Later on in chapter 12, he says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he's speaking of crucifixion. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. And on the cross, as he nears the end of his time, he yells out the word tetelestai, which means it is finished. It is finished. The atonement has been made. The wrath of God has been absorbed. The, what is separating between God and his people, the curse of sin, has been removed and dealt with in the person of Jesus Christ, and he dies. And then, lastly, Jesus rose from the dead, John 20. He says to Thomas in chapter 1, Put your finger here in his wounds and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it into my side. It's weird. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered, My Lord and my God, instantly transformed from a skeptic who's like, Unless I touch Jesus, I'm not even going to believe my eyes. Unless I touch him, I will not believe. And Jesus, in his kindness, gives him that opportunity to touch him. And immediately, John is convinced that Jesus is who he said he is, that Jesus accomplished what he said he was going to accomplish. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So again, we could keep going for hours and hours about all the things that Jesus did accomplish for those who trust in him. Again, like I said, in in chapter 25, it would fill the earth with books to speak of all that Jesus has accomplished for us in the gospel, all that he has done for those who trust in him. So that's quite a resume when you think about it, revealing the glory of God, earning right standing before God, perfectly fulfilling Old Testament scripture, um, bringing an otherworldly kingdom, dying as a blood atonement for all sin before God, and rising from the dead. That's a good resume. That is the pilot you want taking you, right? That is the one you want to trust in. He is not a God that's far and distant, who is remote and inactive. He is near and he is humble. He's engaged. Think, this is the God of the universe who does this. This is Jesus Christ. He uses his power for good. He reverses the curse. He proclaims good news. He endures wrath. He defeats death. He extends forgiveness. He offers reconciliation and he grants eternal life. That's the kind of God that is pictured in Jesus Christ, who he is. And this is what he has accomplished for undeserving sinners. So here we go. Third question. Why does this record of Jesus even matter at all? Wonderful story. The best of fairy tales, at least. But if it's true, why would it matter? If it's not just a fairy tale, if it is real history, if this is the God who exists, then why does this matter? Go to John chapter 3. I'd love for you to see this with your own eyes. John chapter 3, verse 16. At least this story is interesting. (laughs) But if it's true, then this means everything. I think John 3, 16 through 21, we could go to several places in the book of John. This would be a great place because I think it's familiar probably to a lot of you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but but have eternal life. So you got two destinies, right? 
perishing and eternal life. And God sends his son because the world is destined for perishing. And apart from the intervention of God, we'll perish, all of us. But he loves us enough that he gives an access point. He creates a way for us to have eternal life through his son. Now watch the logic here, verse 17. For God did not send his world into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus is an offer of terms of peace to his enemies. The coming of Jesus. Jesus did not come this first time to condemn the world, but to offer terms of peace, salvation to those who are there. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. You see the two destinies? And Jesus is the Jesus is the crossroads at that point. What you do with Jesus is what determines the condemned or not condemned state. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light and his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Do you see that? Why does it matter? Because we're all destined for perishing, condemnation, darkness, unless God intervenes. And praise be to God, he did intervene. And he came and he accomplished this. So this is really bad news and really good news at the same time. The world is so corrupted and broken and evil that it took this kind of sustained effort and energy from the limitless God to fix it. You and I, even on our best day, are in a desperate and doomed state. It took a Godman of the caliber of Jesus and his capability to do the spiritual heavy lifting that was required to bring us back to where we were meant to be to open up the way for us to be changed, renewed, saved, cleansed. And if this account is true, we are in big trouble in and of ourselves. But there is a God. You and I have no shot at fixing ourselves. We have no way of swimming to Japan. We have no way of getting there. But praise God, there is someone who is, if we trust in him, will get us there. If it took all of Jesus, all of that, to save me, then I'm in far bigger trouble than I could have ever imagined, right? My sin is far worse than I thought. I'm far more broken than even I am willing to admit. And we all probably feel that on some level. None of us are as we wish we were. And if this is true, it's going to take a whole lot more (laughs) to save us than we could ever imagine. It takes this God, this kind of effort to bring us to himself. And the good news is that if this is true, then there is an eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful God who loves the unlovely so deeply He loves them so much that he would, from the very moment that the world broke, begin to put in place a long, sustained plan over over millennium to fix it. And he doesn't just delegate it to someone else. He doesn't give it to Gabriel or Michael to go, hey, see what you can make of this. He himself comes to the world to fix it by hand, in person. At the most basic level, starting at the most basic level of being inside Mary as just a few cells to start with and then multiplying out, growing as this child. God himself comes to fix it himself. And this is stunning. He even goes to the point of becoming sin himself on the cross. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might have the righteousness of God. This is stunning that this is the God who is out there who exists. So think about this. What compares to this? If it's true, it's the most important thing in the world, right? If it's not, to, if it's not true, it's kind of the cruelest tease ever. But if it's true, what else, what else is there in life if this is true? What compares to this? If that's who I am and that's who he is, And this is what I have done and what I deserve. And this is what he has done and he didn't deserve. What else can I do but bow down at his feet 
in humble submission and just say thank you. What else would be appropriate? Then I am all yours. My Lord and my God. You gave all of yourself for me and to me, so I give up. I'm all yours. I no longer want the things that displease you. I want to please you. I want to turn from my sin. I want to follow you. I want to trust you. I'm with you. I want you. I love you. I need you. You are everything to me. He's the difference between light and darkness, the difference between life and death, the difference between everlasting punishment and unending delight. He's the difference between bondage and freedom. He's the difference between judgment and life. He's the, judge, he's the difference between good and evil for eternity. So therefore, question number four, what is the right response? We've already hinted at it. There's two key words in the, in the Gospel of John in terms of responding to Jesus. One is the word receive. It happens 25 times in the Gospel of John. So if you receive the terms of his pardon, who he is, what he's done, you receive that, here's some things that you get. Chapter 1, verse 12, you possess the right to become a child of God. In, in, uh, in verse 16 of chapter 1, you receive grace upon grace. In, verse, in chapter 7 and in chapter 14, you receive the Holy Spirit. You receive Jesus, you get the Holy Spirit as well, package deal. In chapter 13, you receive God himself. In chapter 16, you receive fullness of joy. The idea is they're like overflowing, like joy that you in your own capacity couldn't contain all of it. Like, I think I've used the description before of like standing with a Nalgene under the Niagara Falls. Like, there's just not enough, <laughs> there's not enough of me to contain the joy and the grace that is being lavished upon me. And in, in chapter 17, we receive the knowledge of the truth. But the overwhelming word that is used is the word believe. 84 times is the word believe used in the Gospel of John. 84 times as the right response to who Jesus is, what he's done, why it matters. The right response is to believe, to trust, to get on board with him. In the ESV Bible, just looking at the English Bible, I know this is not the deepest scholarship in the world, but just the word believe in just the ESV Bible happens 258 times, 84 of it's in John. Almost a third of the Bibles, at least in the, our English version, is in the Gospel of John. That's John's point, believe. Get on board with this. Let me just read for you. I don't know if I put these on the slide or not, but just listen to this. Let me just, I just selected one from each chapter of the book of John, just one sentence or couple of sentences containing the word believe, and you just in your mind kind of put it together as I just picked one out of each chapter, except for 15, 18, and 21. The word doesn't pop up there, but just listen and see if you can't see what John is doing in every chapter of John. Chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In chapter 2, verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remember that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. Chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, for the wrath of God remains on him. Chapter 4, verse 42. He said to the woman, uh, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have come and heard ourselves. We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Chapter 6, verse 29. Jesus answered him, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who sent, who he has sent. Uh, I snuck another extra one here in chapter 6. Verse 35, Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Chapter 7, verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Chapter 8, verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, that I am he, you will die in your sins. Chapter 9, verse 35, verse 38, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Chapter 10, verse 37, if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. <laughs> do not not believe me if you do not see a connection between me and God like this 
Jesus is realistic there. He wants them to believe the truth. Chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Chapter 12, verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Again, in chapter 12, verse 46, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Chapter 13, verse 19, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am him. Chapter 14, verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Chapter 16, verse 30, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Chapter 17, verse 21, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one and that the world may believe that you have sent me. John chapter 19, verse 35, he who saw this has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. And John 20, 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what's the right response? to Jesus. Receive him. Believe on him. AKA follow him, trust in him, abide in him, submit to him, pledge allegiance to him. You're going to trust in something. Stop trusting in yourself. Trust in Christ. Jesus is most qualified of your trust. His resume speaks for itself. Go with him. Follow him. Bow before him. He will cleanse you. He will restore you. He will forgive you. Receive him. Believe him. Trust in him. So just two final things that I want to leave you with. For those of you that do not yet believe, here's what I want you to hear straight from me. First of all, we love you. We like you. We respect you. We are very honored and grateful that you would sit through a long message like this and consider it. And we believe that you deserve to know what this Jesus thing is really all about. There are a lot of things out there that call themselves Christianity. There's a lot of things that out there that call itself gospel. Even, even myself, I have not always represented Jesus well. Uh, as a church, we've not always represented him well. And we just owe you the responsibility. We owe God the responsibility to just lay it out for you straight on. Not softening it to make you like it more not hardening it to make it more offensive than it already kind of is in some ways. Just straight. We just want to be mailmen that deliver the mail. <laughs> we just want to bring you the plane tickets already paid for you. You can just redeem them if you want them. You can reject them if you want them. We respect you. We understand. We love you. And we want more than anything else for you to redeem them, for you to receive them, for you to believe them, for you to step onto the airplane, for you to trust in the one who can get you there. We want with all our heart for you to believe this message. But we understand that sometimes it takes some time thinking through this and reading the scripture and praying, and that's okay. That's what we want. And so if you do not yet believe, we just ask for you to consider, and thanks for sitting through this. <laughs> thanks for considering. considering what, consider what the word of God says, and we want with all our heart for you to join us, for you to be part of this life. And we are available to you if you have any questions about this or you want to pray with someone. Uh, we want you to know that we really do want you to know what the real thing is and then by the power of the Holy Spirit, come to believe it for yourself. So that's where we're at. And for those of us that already believe, keep on believing more deeply than ever. Embrace the I am-ness of Jesus. Think about these for a second. Just in the Gospel of John, I am the bread of life. Embrace that as your own. He is your bread of life. When he says, I am the light of the world, know that that's for you, to lead and to guide you. That when he says, I am the door of the sheep, that he's your door, your protection. That when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, that that's yours. Live into that. Trust that ever more deeply. When he says, I am the good shepherd, trust in him as a shepherd. Trust that what he says is right and true and that he, is lay, he has laid down his life for you. Trust that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Trust in him as the true vine. Abide in him. Abide in him. Live according to the new covenant kingdom culture and values. Love Jesus by serving one another, chapter 13. 
Love Jesus by abiding in him. Chapter 15. Love Jesus by trusting in his promises. Chapter 14. Love Jesus by remembering his prayer for us. John chapter 17. And love Jesus by feeding his sheep. Chapter 21. And where the book ends. And last of all, those of us who do believe, give someone else a shot at this thing. Give someone a chance to believe. Tell them the message of Jesus Christ as winsomely and as clearly as you can. Give someone else an opportunity to know this. What they do with it is, is on them. But let's give someone else a shot at this. Maybe there's someone in your heart or in your mind that's, that's coming to your mind, I guess I should say, someone on your heart, in your mind, that you would like to give a shot at this. And I would encourage you to take, take a chance. Ask a question. Maybe take that little gospel of John and say, hey, would you want to read this with me? Might be awkward. You might think they might say yes. They might say yes and come to meet Jesus. Give someone else a shot at this thing. The news is too good. God has accomplished so much. Let's give other, other people an opportunity to get in on it. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this gospel of John. Thank you that you are the God who is like this. Um, there's no way. There's no way um, anyone could make this up. There's no one over the course of thousands of years of history could arrange events to so fulfill in this perfect way. So Lord, I pray that the things that have been recorded in this book would open our eyes and open our hearts and would draw us in to you. Help us to turn away from trusting in ourselves. Help us turn away from our sin. Help us forsake those things and look to the king and be drawn in to trust in him, to receive forgiveness of sins, to receive a new life trusting that he can get us where we can't get ourselves. And Lord, help us to be willing to give someone else an opportunity to board the plane with us, to come with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.